Hello and welcome to a frankly mind-bending special guest interview for Straight From The Hot Tap. A lady called Anne Biddle who went to school in Taunton got in touch with us, promising that if we interviewed her husband Paul, we wouldn't be disappointed. It is rare that I'm lost for words, even rarer still that Matt puts down his topper Chico and is also lost for words. This is one of those times where I felt a combination of humility at having had the privilege to talk to somebody who really has achieved great things, and an element of embarrassment at how I'd let my own life take such a routine and mundane path. Before you start listening, an apology. We've worked really hard over the last six months to improve the recording quality. Due to the huge distances involved with some of our recordings, this can be a massive challenge. And this one, unfortunately, isn't quite where we would like it to be. But put on some headphones, pour yourself a drink and check this out. It really is extraordinary. If you enjoyed this episode please like share and leave us a review on itunes Castbox, or podchaser if you didn't well why not turn it off and go join the french foreign legion this is straight from the hot tap i've always thought it's really important in life to have as many adventures as possible just from the very simple fact that life's limited some point it's going to end you want to know that you took advantage of it every now and then i come across people who really pain me because they haven't done that. They've basically lived in pure fear. So when I heard that the next interview was from a guy who'd been kicked out of the French Foreign Legion, presumably for being too hard, I realized they had to be involved. And when Matt sent me this guy's resume, I was astonished by two things. Firstly, here was a guy who had basically fulfilled every single teenage male fantasy that I'd ever had. But secondly, here was a guy who seems to have spent his whole life doing the one thing that I've tried to do, which is to live without fear. This guy managed to put it off. Man, I talked to him, and this is what you're going to hear over the next hour. This is Straight From The Hot Tap, special guest interviews. Your wife kindly put us in touch as somebody who has had a very interesting career in life. So when I read your CV, I guess my first thought was, what a massive underachiever. (laughs) (laughs) Sadly, yes. One of the sad bits is that that's the bits I can tell you about. You're going to have to elaborate on some things here. (laughs) I suppose one of the things I ought to sort of throw in there is that I actually was in the French Foreign Legion as well. Really? Oh my goodness. You just not. I mean, I've got to say, it was only for a few weeks, but that's a, a story <laughs> in itself. Hold on, hold on, hold on. So you were in the French Foreign Legion, for real? Yes. Uh, as someone who once pitched a, a TV show to several networks about the Foreign Legion, I would have loved to have talked to you uh, in 2018. But uh, I've also got to say I was a massive failure as well. Really? Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh my um, God, look at your resume. Jesus. <laughs> Uh, I, I can't believe you slacked off so much for so many years and just didn't just sat around doing nothing. I mean, I basically me- retired when I was about twenty-five. You retired when you're about twenty-three, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you're the poster child for retirement begins at twenty-five. Yeah. What happened was that there were two parts to this story. The first part is that uh, I was coming back from traveling, work my passage back, and then I got to um, a small camping site and, and fell out with the uh, 
the owner who promptly called the police and, and, the, and the police took me to the station where I announced in a very loud voice that I was going to join Le Grand Projet, mm. uh, to which they <laughs> said, fine, we'll take you there. Oh, oh, good. Oh, oh okay. Um, well, I wasn't actually going to do it right away. Luckily for me that um, they, they actually only took me to the nearest bar, and uh, so that was that. Then I went back to uh, the UK and had trouble settling down, and then decided to, yeah, okay, uh, I'll take a hint and go. At, at that point, I, I travelled off to Paris and spent a couple of weeks doing corvée, uh, which is their, their equivalent to washing the dishes and sweeping floors. Then uh, put the train down with all the potential recruits down to Marseille and then uh, Aubagne, and made it all the way through until I was on a run and fell over. Uh, and they noticed that I had varicose veins. And so I actually was kicked out of the French Foreign Legion for Varicose Spain. Oh, it no. It was rather in- inglorious. If I was you, I'd have maybe changed the narrative on that a little bit. I mean, it's been thrown out for being just too violent or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I was too hard and too mean. Yeah, being too hard, yeah. <laughs> I-, I think it's quite amusing now, sort of years later, that everyone says, and yes, I-, I-, I was kicked out. And everyone sort of goes, oh. Oh, he must have been really, really horrible. And obviously, it's <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, Paul. If this was the Hollywood version, I'll tell you what I would have done. Right? I would have. <laughs> we would have said that being kicked out for varicose veins was your cover story. Absolutely, to make it acceptable. Because yeah. the reality was, you were just too hard. Yeah, yeah. That was that was their excuse. Yeah, exactly. So that was their excuse yeah. for being able to kick you out. Because you just made you made the instructors too nervous that you were too Absolutely. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, and that's the story. I think from from this day onwards, I shall uh, regale. I'll back it up. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I was just going to ask you. I saw that you worked in in Jamaica. Did you ever meet the English police chief there, Mark Shields? Yes, I did very briefly. That came up in something else that I did once. The idea that there was this English police chief in Jamaica, and there were, people were going to do a show about set in Jamaica with this English guy. Matt, it's really interesting. This English guy was drafted in from the police, from the Metropolitan Police, and he ended up running the Jamaican police for a while. If you had to summarize yourself to like a five-year-old, what do you do? I had a career in the prison service, which in itself was unusual insofar as it didn't follow the sort of norms of going off and just running prisons or whatever. Obviously, I spent four years with foreign office, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Palestine. Unbelievable. And then within the prison service, you know, my work was three years in national operations, uh, national intelligence, uh, and working with various agencies doing post 9-11 stuff. And so, so it wasn't a traditional prison service. To sum it up, really, I, I guess I'm the guy that you call when you just want a red teaming idea. How do we resolve this? We've gone down the, the sort of normal uh, manner of, of, of doing things. And my father said to me, you're never going to learn a language. You're not bright enough. And he said, but culturally, you will understand and be very empathetic to any cultures. You have a, a, an empathy. And so one of the little stories, I was in going off to Indonesia, and the, the problem was that the agencies that, dealt with terrorist prisoners were not talking to themselves. So you had the police, the prisons, and the intelligence uh, and counter-terrorism team. And I'd already been told that 
the Australians didn't want me there, the Indonesians didn't particularly want me there, and you know, as far as they were concerned, they'd had enough of uh, outsiders coming in and telling them what to do. So I, I read up on, on the culture of Indonesia, and on the Friday when I was due to meet the, the Minister of Justice, they have batik day. So every Friday they wear a batik shirt. And as you know, in Indonesia, each type of batik defines the islands or highlands or tribe or, or clan or, or, or wherever you come from. So I went off to uh, a batik shop, which there are many in Jakarta, bought a nice batik shirt uh, and turned up at my first meeting. And it was very, very uncomfortable because, I mean, you're, you're almost sort of... Um, in the realms of drinking shirts, and uh, and turned up with greetings of hugs and uh, and and all ice was broken and it was okay. We can really really deal with you. You you understand it, Paul. In terms of your journey, then, so one thing that we've been looking at is, look, you know, you go to school, you come out. A lot of us have no idea what we're going to do with our lives. Or in Matt's case, he absolutely knows what he wants to do with his life. Unfortunately, I was cursed with this horrific thing called ambition. Yeah. I, I left school at 15. Right, uh, okay. Yeah, so I left school at 15 with absolutely no qualifications at all and joined the army. It was the Junior Leaders Regiment and it was a, a prep school for uh, senior NCOs and warrant officers British Army. The system's now long gone, sadly, but it was a, a fabulous prep for uh, working class lads who wanted to go in uh, and, and do a career in the forces. And... Uh, did my education and trade training in that, went off to my regiment, served in Northern Ireland, and then at 21, uh, decided that uh, I'd leave and went and joined the Metropolitan Police. That wasn't for me at that point in time. Culturally, the military is very different to the police, isn't it? It is a difficult jump, and it's not for everyone. I felt that I didn't have the travel bug out of me. Travel for me has always been very important and, and to be tied down although of course I was effectively tied down in the prison service although it was a national service so it meant that we could travel pretty much you know around the country which we did we, we had 11 moves around the country whereas the Metropolitan Police you know you're, you're stuck in London and London is where I came from originally uh, I knew every aspect of it Although the work may have been somewhat exciting and dependent on what you did, I wanted to do more. Prison service didn't come until sort of, you know, a few years later. What happened was that uh, I'd been backpacking around the States, back to the Middle East, going to sort of, you know, relatively exciting places. Uh, I had by then joined the Territorial Army, uh, which gave me my military staff. Parachute Regiment passed all my uh, bits and pieces there. There were some guys there that did some contracting and some stuff off books around the world, so I, I, I did some of that. My my mother phoned me up when I stood still long enough and said, look, your dad's really worried about you. He's applied for the prison service for you. Whoa. Uh, don't be <laughs> angry that. with him. All I'm asking you uh, as your mom is go along. You've got an interview. We've got the letter this morning. Go along for the interview. If it's not for you, that's fine. You know, he, he will feel that he's done something. So I went along, passed the civil service exam, passed the interview stage, and came back. And I went for Sunday lunch. The phone rang, and it was a prison service saying, can you start tomorrow? And at that point, you started at Dorchester. 
And to be fair, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Something clicked inside and went off to the Lay Hill, which was the training college. Again, thoroughly enjoyed it. When you say enjoyed it, which aspects of it really resonated with you? You were taught that you could really make a difference. And you were hands-on. After the, the problem of, after the crime had been committed and the courts had done their bit, it was then down to you through your strength of character, how you could change people's behavior simply as a role model. Uh, that was the prison service of, of, that, of the day. And, and I've got to say that uh, you know, most of the guys that I served with were uh, former service guys. We all had a, a, an empathetic, you know, it could have been us streak, very, very much so with, with many of them. A lot of ex-service prisoners as well. And it just felt, and it still does now, even talking about it, uh, a good career. Everyone had real-world experience that they could share, especially if you were the young offenders. And they didn't rely on previous academic qualifications. You, you got those inside the job. I also found promotion very quickly. Uh, I was very lucky to be sponsored, uh, as you often have to be. You know, uh, so you know, I was very lucky to sort of whiz up the ranks relatively fast. Well, you mentioned about making a real difference. So some of the people I've met over the years is, that have been in and out of the prison service. My grandfather works it for a period of time, a good friend of mine locally to here. They lament the fact that they struggled to make a difference what do you think you were able to do that broke that chain if you like the, the prison service structures your expectations so you know I, I remember a very old prison officer who still had his world war ii ribbons up uh, with his great big pipe and pointing at us youngins uh, who said you will save one person in your career and you'll be lucky to do that but you will hopefully save one person and he was right in theory, because in those days, you occasionally got a letter from a prisoner who said, uh, thank you, Mr. B, I'm married, I have two kids, I've got a really good job, and it was all down to you. The truth of the matter is, it's a team effort. And so, you know, for me to get that, that's spectacular, and that was the one that I got. But it's very much a team effort. Uh, what made a difference? Being able to talk in their, their language about their issues. Most of us have been through you know, life-changing issues. And, uh, of course, understanding the culture that led them to, to be where they are. Uh, as I say, I, I came from South London, so I knew many of the areas that they came from. Like I say my first person was Brixton. I, I went to... Uh, a little, little school called Rosendale, which was also the, the school my grand, grandfather went to. Uh, I then went to uh, a newly formed comprehensive, which is also the, uh, where um, the SAS writer also went who was a year below me. Andy McNabb. Andy McNabb, not his real name, of course. Really? Um, <laughs> um, do, you, do you know his real name, Paul? Yes, I do. This could be a world exclusive for our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's pretty Googleable. On the subject of literature, Paul, I'm not a particularly avid reader. You know, I, I do like reading, but I'm, I'm not an avid reader. There's, there's two books that have left a real imprint on me. There's a book called Holidays in Hell by P.J. O'Rourke, 
Okay. Uh, and another book called Mad World, My Masters, which is by the foreign correspondent John Simpson. Yeah. Yeah. The reason I love both of those books is they talk about the these places of turmoil, of war, and of d- disaster sometimes, and they bring out the human stories, the culture, and oftentimes the the humour as well. Now, I like reading about that. You've been there and seen it, Paul. Well, one of the things that amazes a lot of people that sort of know a little bit about where I go and what I do is their window is, is the television. When, when you go to the places, and, I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, I, I don't want to downplay the horrors of you know, Haiti, for example. I arrived a few days after the earthquake. The, uh, the foreign office who briefed me beforehand were very clear that I was not to talk to the press as I embarked off the plane my blackberry went off with and that i was to be interviewed by writers in the bbc within sort of 15 minutes of getting off the plane the daily mirror had a, a front page splurge of we have uh, just found out the name of the person being sent to haiti to uh, find the 5,000 prisoners that escaped the point is that we were put next to uh, a cuban medical team who brought with them copious amounts of cuban cigars and rum so, you know, we would find ourselves sitting uh, on, the, uh, on the airfield with all the emergency team, smoking Cuban cigars and drinking Cuban rum. Uh, and then the other side was the U.S. Air Force, who had been told that under no circumstances were they allowed to talk to the Cubans, for obvious reasons. So you can find solace in the most horrendous places and a degree of humor, but certainly peace as well. And... I think it's the, the extremes. If I were to be pushed to say what drives me is the extremes. For example, where I was in Iraq just before Johnson Bahari uh, won his VC, we had actually driven through that checkpoint where, he, where they got ambushed. Equally so, the, the Battle of Dannyboy, we had driven up that road uh, a number of times. We had set up a bar on the, the Shat al-Arab in Basra with a very good friend of mine who is a police and crime commissioner, former commander of the Met Police, drinking uh, some champagne that we'd managed to procure from one of the basements of Saddam's palaces and you know, watching the sun, sun set over, over Iran, over Iranian waters. And so y- you can find that, that, you know, some, some great places and to visit places and see places which is, if I was to say to you, some of the places I've been to, you know, you'd go, well, I wouldn't go there ever. And I would know that I could go there. And yes, it would be dangerous. Um, but there would also be incredible things to see. And, and people. And people. After all of the places you've been to, and, and of course, you know, the people that you've met and interacted with o- over the years, I- I'm sure that there's times where you're faith in humanity has been sorely tested how do you maintain that sense of optimism that there is a solution to you know saving somebody as you as you talked about within the police service i hope this comes over well i haven't come across anything that i or people around me haven't been able to resolve you know if you happen to have first aid training or you have contacts um in the ukraine i found a 17 year old girl had been snatched from one of the separatist checkpoints and my, my youngest daughter was 17 uh, she was at, at Taunton at the time and so I looked around my team and I said what are we going to do about it uh, this is what I want to do 
and I'm prepared to do it by myself. And they said, nope, we'll all go down there. And we went down to where we knew she was being held. Probably the most frightening time of my career. We were you know, guns in our mouths and made to kneel and threatened to be executed. And I noticed that one of the guys was wearing a very small lapel badge that had the uh, Russian-Afghan uh, memorial uh, logo on it. And I said to him, Afghansky? Yes. And I said, I'm Afghansky at all as well. And so he, he, everything just stopped. He said, no, stand, quick, vodka. And the whole thing was over in seconds because I knew what it meant to Russians about serving in Afghanistan. And when he found out that I served in Afghanistan as well, the whole thing changed and we, we got the girl out. And, and so, you know, sometimes you just have to be very bold and it's not bravery in any way, shape or form. I knew my team was were there with me. There was support in it. Uh, we had comms back to, to Pierre, car outside, and at the end of the day, uh, we were diplomats. And they also knew that I knew people higher than them. If the circumstances are such where you are in a position to do something, do it. Clearly, there are things that you know uh, are outside of my control, uh, and, I, and I'm not there to, to, to resolve them. So just being there, uh, I'm, I'm preparing to be there. Uh, and I think that, that's the thing. And, uh, but I've always trained or courses or gained experience just in case I'm there. You talked about an incident there with ultimately a positive resolution, but I'm sure there have been times where you haven't had a positive resolution, where things have, haven't ended well. How do you go to bed at night and switch off from that? Uh, you don't. You don't. Uh, yes, there, there are a, a couple of sort of quite, quite nasty bits and pieces that happened. Haiti was, was very difficult because obviously we were surrounded by 300,000 dead. And um, uh, when we turned up at the Minister of Justice's tech, which was in a, on a car park, um, we walked over and uh, spoke to him about how, how we were going to help and what resources we had. And I said, you know, how many of your people have you got out? He said, none. I said, where are they? He said, you're sitting on them. This is, this is the roof of my building. It wasn't a car park. It was the roof of the, of the, of the ministry, and they're still in there. And, you know, th there was nothing you could do about that. In Iraq, we turned up at a prison that hadn't, hadn't been seen since the Taliban to find the place full of clothes where the Taliban had marked them out, stripped them all off inside the prison. And you had cardboard notices to their loved ones all the way around as they were marked off in the desert and executed. And they, they think there was someone in the region of about 20,000. Unbelievable. Yeah, uh, and you know, you, you have to record this, and, uh, and one of the things that I've always done with all the things that I've seen uh, in, in the Ukraine, we managed to save a family, but the father was shot uh, and left in the car, is to report on it, and to report in, in such a way that, that everyone is going to know the, the story. You're able then to put a, a, a good story together, a definitive story of what happened. And, and not leave anything to chance or, or, or ambiguity. So, so, you know, you sit down, uh, you type it out. It's difficult to be reading about Hemingway and, and, and people, some of the war reporters and what they, they saw, especially after, you know, um, Auschwitz and Dachau and Belgium and stuff like that. 
and how they their outlet was simply that they had to tell the story. That's what I've done. Although, of course, these stories aren't public. You must feel a great sense of frustration, though, when you when you see how many mistakes are made by politicians that had every opportunity to do better. I look back now, and I don't know if you know, but the Brits were kicked out of Haiti in, I think, 1966. Really? And Ambassador at the time had had a punch-up with the Minister of Finance or something like that. So the embassy that represented Haiti was based in the Dominican Republic. One of the things that my team did was that there is now an embassy in Haiti because the, the Haitians appreciated the work we did. But we started to do a lot of work with uh, the French police, uh, the Haitian police and the prison system. We were there for six months and I put together a paper saying, you know, there is so much more that, you know, and, and they like it. So, you know, the, the French have been here, the Americans have been here and I really didn't understand or have the contacts that, that we did. Um, and this was a golden opportunity for very little money, but to uh, bolster UK uh, in, in Haiti, jobs, investment, etc. cetera. Uh, and they just said, no, no, that was it. You know, so all that goodwill, gone. And the other example, funny enough, in, in 2006, we've been training the... Uh, County Narcotics Police. Uh, we're supposed to have brought the certificates with us before uh, we left them in the office. Yeah. Uh, I got a phone call from the British Embassy saying that uh, the BBC had just announced that uh, the Taliban and Al Qaeda had taken over the prison. And would I go up there uh, and see what, what was going on? I spent four days up there and negotiated with the Taliban. Uh, we got the dead out. They had taken the women hostages, staff, got those out, and it was the former education minister of the Taliban, who I actually got on very, very well. He, he actually gave me a sport present, uh, which I still have. And um, we had long conversations. Anyway, relocated them. And what we did it, that the Afghans would then gain the, uh, all the kudos for the whole thing being ended. And I got a cracking little letter from um, ISAF and from various other people. And it was, the, they did it, George Bush had just flown into Kabul, it was the Doha conference, and the whole idea was it was going to, all these people would escape, head into Kabul, cause all sorts of stuff, Doha would collapse, George Bush would be flown out, Americans, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so uh, very, very good. But the upshot of it was that, we could have built on that. We, we had a position there where use of force, um, we had senior Taliban people to talk to, we negotiated with them, and we had a dialogue that could have been, then been brought forward to say, okay, you know, we're, we're not going to do what you did and take you out into the desert and kill you. And if you have any grievances, we can deal with those. So there was golden opportunity to jump on that, and nobody was bothered. And everyone just went away, and that was the end of it. I, I was the uh, senior uh, or the police advisor for the governor of Anbar uh, in 2016, um, looking at the day after, after the army had taken over uh, the villages and towns from, uh, from ISIS and Daesh. And uh, again, a golden opportunity for the UK to, to look at 
how they could you know, develop intelligence, uh, stuff like that. But it was never exploited, never exploited at all. So lots of little nuances like that. But, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a very small cog and, and bigger pictures are out there. And, you know, I have to accept sometimes these bigger pictures don't include some of the things that I'm thinking. Of all the people that you've met then, Paul, over the years, in, in all these different places, in all these different, different situations, who's left the most lasting impression on you? I, I didn't get to know him well, but I think as far as resilience is concerned, I was in Papua New Guinea, and my task was to go around the whole of uh, Papua New Guinea uh, and do a, an audit on the security of, of the detention facilities. It was the first audit, in fact, that the, uh, the prison service in Papua New Guinea had ever done, also because it was funded by, by uh, the Australians and ourselves. So we'd flown up to Mount Hagen, uh, and then we were doing a, a trip down to, to Ley, uh, which is uh, about a, a four or five day journey, stopping off to the various places. And most of the jails are centered on old government posts. So these are basically huge clearings in, in the jungle that then have a chalet bungalow and where the, the government administrators or the area administrators would, would live. So we, we turned up in one and there was a, uh, we knew there was a lock up there um, and but there was no sign of the, the guy that should be there. And an old, an old guy came out, very difficult to judge uh, age uh, in Papua New Guinea, and he gave a very sort of sharp salute. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm the guy. And everyone went, well, we don't know who you are. And he said, oh, well, you know, you sent me here 25 years ago. No way. And uh, 25 years ago, and the papers were lost, and he carried on doing his job. And so we were due to, to have a rest period and, and fly back uh, before we continued our journey. So we went back. and. Um, picked up a uniform, two three uniforms, a medal that he should have got, and uh, came back. In Pigeon, uh, a barbecue cookout, uh, it's called a moo because they do it with cows, so it's a moo So they had a huge moo and of course then they had a sing-sing, which is obviously singing, and they did a presentation of the medal and uniforms, and um, I managed to sit down and talk to him and uh, just you know, I was given this job, I haven't been paid, but I, I'm not going to leave. Uh, and of course, all the locals came out and said what a marvellous guy he was, uh, harsh but fair, and if anyone broke the law, you know, they went into the lockup for 24 hours or whatever it was. And I just thought, you know, how many people would, would be bothered or, or just to marry locally and go off and raise corn or something? But this guy. Was was just something that I, I hoped it was. I guess it was a period of time that I just felt this is the best of us. And we had all this. And I, I went over to say goodbye to him. We were travelling farther on down. It's interesting this this place that we went to. The only way over it was a was an old Japanese uh, bridge that had been built during World War Two. Anyway, so I hadn't even and nobody had even come in and changed the bridge and. He said to me, he said, see you in 25 years. <laughs> Brilliant. That's um, incredible. And, and, incredible he, story. and probably right as well. 
my interpreter in, in Basra, because I've just come back from, from Kurdistan, he found out I was there, and he's down in Basra. And there's no uh, love lost between the Iraqi Arab and, and the Kurds. He knew it was my daughter's birthday. I, I, it's something I talked about back in 2004. And he contacted me and said, I've got a present for your daughter. I'll drive up. I mean, this is from 2004. Uh, and, of course, there's a big thing about interpreters at the moment where I think a lot of people are maybe un unsure of whether we should be bringing interpreters back to the UK or, or to the US. And I've got to say their loyalty to us is just amazing. I've had my life saved without question by interpreting a number of times. Why is there a question of whether or not they should be brought back? I think it comes back to the, uh, the, the immigration question. I think it comes back to who really are they? What skills do they have? I think Pathetic, it's a whole... Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's awful. It's awful. Well, I mean, I'll give an example. My, my interpreter in Azra was, uh, was a trained helicopter pilot. And then he, then he trained as an engineer. And uh, he was anti-Sedan, so he lost his job. Uh, he then joined us and spent six months and then the team after us literally helping out in, in every aspect. And I don't know if you know uh, Emma Nicholson, Baroness Nicholson. The name, yeah. She's, she works very much with Kurdistan and Iraq and, and Romania and, 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 and issues along those lines. And I was the team leader for the parliamentary elections for the first elections in Iraq. And I got to know Emma very, very well and still, still in contact with her. And he was her interpreter for the first election. So, uh, you know, he was willing to go out. Uh, and I, I remember driving out to our various election places we were going, listening to them being blown up. And Emma, who is probably one of the bravest women I know, saying, no, no, we've got to go. This is so important for democracy that they see us there. And Fidel, who's, who's the interpreter, saying, look, I tell you what, we'll, we'll stop just outside. I'll go in first to make sure it's safe. I mean, putting his life online to make sure. And, and the other interpreter I have was in the Ukraine. Uh, one of the jobs that I had to do was to take electronic uh, communications equipment from the Ukrainian side uh, and from the Minsk talks over to the secretary's side through various minefields and bits and pieces. Um, and we did that. It was very successful. And um, on the way back, we were stopped by a rogue separatist unit because there isn't a single one. And we kept the, uh, the car, um, guns to our heads, made to kneel, threatened to be executed, blah, blah, blah. And she just stood up to them and said, you don't know who these people are. They're really important. If any harm comes to them, you know, uh, so and so, so and just threw names at them in Russian. And even afterwards, she wouldn't even tell me who they were. Um, and um, diffused the whole thing. And we're with our hands on our heads on our knees. And, and there she is, absolutely fearless. And not for the first time. So when something like that happens to you, Paul, don't you get so scared that you never want to be in that situation again? Or is it in some way weirdly energizing? I think that one of the first things I do is how did I get in that situation and how can I not get in that situation again? And, you know, it's not the first time that's happened. And each of them, you know, I've gone through that process of, you know, is that something I could have not done? In this circumstances, 
yes, we could have gone back the way we came. And the way we came was through a thing called the, the Road of Life, which is where the uh, IDPs, the internally displaced people, were going. Um, heavily mined, but there was no separatists there at all. We decided that we would go the quick way back because it was getting dark, and and we didn't know what was there, and nor did the separatist commanders know what was there. So we, we took a chance. Uh, I mean, when we first arrange, uh, arrived in Ukraine, um, I was the security officer for the team, and I was overawed on half the team going off to an area that we hadn't been before. And this was before the Russians actually came in. It was just the, the separatists who were kicking off. And they never came back. They were held hostage for three months. And then the little green men turned up, and we had to leave literally everything behind, grab what we had in our grab bag. Who are the little green men? Uh, Russian, Russian special forces. Right. I mean, I got to meet quite a few of them later on uh, when I was uh, liaising with the, uh, the separatist leaders. No, they're all Russian, uh, Russian soldiers, mainly uh, special forces, Spetsnaz. Some of them are, are, are contractors, but most of them are, are serving. I heard that a lot of them belong to this company called Wagner. Yeah, yeah. We met quite a few of them, uh, not the brightest bunch on the farm, but, um, but the, these guys were, 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 you know, were, the, were the top of a lot. And uh, uh, so they, they took over our hotel and we, we got out very, very quickly. Uh, made it to a, another place uh, where we had the decision then that we would break off into, into threes, one military, one police and one civilian, and, um, and break out as best we could. And I was the last team out. Uh, we took the last train out uh, of Luhansk. And yeah, and uh, then when we got back to Harker, uh the team was asked whether it wanted to, to continue uh, in the east or or, or not uh, and I stayed in Luhansk with a, a Danish guy and we were then attached to the uh, Ukrainian anti-terror team who were then starting to retake the villages afterwards and our job was to reports on war crimes, executions. And so as someone, uh, this is just almost just because I'm really interested, <laughs> right? I've got two questions for you, right? Just because I'm in this extraordinary situation where I've got the benefit of your knowledge right in front of me. First of all, what's going on in the Ukraine now? Russia doesn't accept Ukraine as a, as a country. I think that's the first. Um, mainly because obviously the Rus people, of which Russia is named after, comes from the Ukraine. Uh, also, of course, up to Kiev, they're all Russian speaking. It doesn't accept that it's a real place. No, and it, and it never has, in, in fairness. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the Russian Empire uh, in its heyday, it was a, a province. Um, so, so I think that's, that's the first thing. The, the second is that um, much depends on uh, the geopolitics or, or the reach of, of Europe. Um, the, the more that uh, Europe wants to, to reach in and, and make it part of, for example, the European Union or, or any of those trading blocks, um, then Russia is going to be pissed. Um, um, and because it's, it will be, uh, for example, um, Russian missiles in Scotland. Mm, mm. Um, uh, and what's the situation now? Like, are, like, are the Russians there still? 
Oh yeah, the, the, the Russians are there. Yeah, I mean, well, the most of the the commanders that I actually know uh, or knew um, have all disappeared, um, and there's new lot there. So the the the, the old school um, separatists have all but gone. Really? Um, the Cos- yeah, the Cossacks, the miners, most of those have have all gone back to their their, their hearths and homes. And now what we have is, is very much volunteer Russian soldiers, right. Russian soldiers there. And the Severodonetsk is the, is the river, which is the boundary. And, and what happens is you'll get some occasional sniping or if the Ukrainians decide that they want to um, build a bit, build better, build bigger uh, fortifications on the Severodonetsk, then the Russians will do something about it. So it's not as bad. I mean... I, I came under quite considerable Ukrainian shelling while I was in the hunt, and equally so, I've come under quite considerable uh, shelling from from the Russians. Paul, you mentioned a second ago seeing the very best in people. I'm sure you've also seen the very worst. When have you felt like you've really met or seen somebody rotten to the core? What does that look like? One of the strange things about when you're negotiating with really evil people, and I have negotiated with really evil people, is when you're negotiating with them, you actually negotiate their better side. And everyone does have a better side, and even though that better side may not be as nice as you would want it to be. I think certainly the negotiations with some of the separatists, who I had actually seen execute people, for example, but would then sit down and offer you some of their mum's sandwiches who they've made that morning, and you would sit down and you would eat those sandwiches and talk football. Doesn't your head explode? For example, everything that you've just said, to me, like, I understand the events, but, like, if you've seen someone execute someone else and then you have to sit down with them, I just can't imagine what that's like. There's a, there's a sort of a, a bit that says to you, I've got to keep on his nice side. Yeah, because <laughs> you're scared. Yeah. And uh, the other thing is, is that, you know, you have a responsibility to report it. And by default, you want to get out of there alive. And so what you do is you put it in little boxes. And, you know, this is how I've dealt with most of the things that I've seen in my life is it goes into a box. Every now and then, I'll take it out, I'll dust it off, I'll look at it, get very angry or very sad, and then it goes back in its box again. But I think that it comes from being in the prison service. When you have to sit down with, I don't know, I've worked in a specialist unit for uh, level three, that's international pedophiles. I have to make sure that they are fed, they are watered, they are clothed, they have education, and I have to listen to their complaints that, that the film was rubbish the night before. and so. This is why, you know, the prison service for me was a, uh, was a, a wonderful, wonderful training exercise for the work that I do, because it means that I've continued, I've worked with, uh, and I understand how to deal with the worst of the worst. And your demeanor and the, the way that you go about your work uh, means that you can actually exploit that. I mean, the education minister for the Taliban, I mean, yeah, I'll sit down, or the worst terrorist, or whatever. Wow, I, it's just so interesting. What's the way you relax? Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a great and avid reader and researcher. I like military history. I collect British medals and French medals. 
And so I will get a medal and I will re research that person to absolute death. I will find something that nobody's found before, no one's checked up before. I'll research it, find out their story, and go on to various forums or wherever, and I will then report on this person and what they did and what they didn't do. But it brings people back to life and their mm. stories. If I could just follow that up with another question, what's your greatest fear? Don't have one. Okay. I've pondered that myself, and I keep thinking that something's going to happen. I'll see something or do something, and, and that'll be it, and that'll be all, all over and done with, and I'll end up in a, in a corner somewhere. But no, nothing. <laughs> the reason I asked that question is because I read your resume, and the first thing that occurred to me, and listening to you talk and bringing it to life, I was like, wow, what on earth could this guy be afraid of? I was hoping you'd say spiders or something like that. <laughs> something terrible like that. You know? No, it's funny, you know, uh, nothing. I mean, you know, I, I've trained for most outcomes. I've seen what the world can throw at me. I guess if I were to take it to the sort of degree of being forgotten or my story disappears from the world, I, that doesn't <laughs> bother me either. Looking back at all the amazing things you've done and all of the situations you've been in, what do you look at with the greatest sense of pride? Well, I think surviving. <laughs> <laughs> that is, um, to be fair, that is remarkable, given where you've been and what you've done. That's always been a difficult one. I think my achievement is being there for most of the historical things that have happened. Right. And I was, what, 18, 19-year-olds in, in Northern Ireland, and uh, I was part of the arrest team that arrested Martin McGuinness. Oh, my um, God. And that was something. And, uh, and then, obviously, in the prison service, the Strangeways riots and, and various stuff there. I think that it's not being afraid to put yourself in a position where you might fail. Because failure itself is not failure. It just means that you can do it better next time. I haven't got varicose veins anymore, for example. <laughs> no, that's the big tragedy of all of this, isn't it? I mean, you could have um, been an excellent French foreign legionary. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, it's their loss. If you had to have a piece of advice, what, what advice would you give to, to someone about the way to live your life? Oh, don't be afraid of failure. Failure is, is fun. As long as you learn from that failure. I was in the Territorial Army Parachute Regiment. Wow. Uh, I, yeah, but I Paul, just... is there anything that you haven't done? Um, <laughs> no. No, my father said to me, my grandfather was a regular army. He served through North Africa and landed on D-Day, etc. My father was in the army, served in Malaya in the jungles, uh, fighting the communists out there. I came home once before I joined the army, and he said the thing about don't volunteer for anything or whatever it was. He said, no, no, son. He said, no, volunteer for everything. Literally. The conversation went, and you're going to fail most of them. But better to, to go through that process than to sit back at 65 and say, I wish I'd given it a go. So, you know, if somebody phones me up, this afternoon and says, can you go and do this? The answer is yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it, by the way, it's beautiful what you say. It reminds me of um, my favorite bit from this movie, Little Miss Sunshine, where the, um, the little girl feels really bad because her dad's a motivational speaker and just doesn't want to be a loser. 
And she says to Grandad, I'm scared of being a loser. She's only eight. And the Grandad goes, you know what the real loser is in the world? It's the person who's so scared of failure that they don't even try. Absolutely. Yeah. Joined the Thurzor uh, Army Parachute Regiment, and I was in their intelligence section. And uh, they sent me off to do special forces training at uh, the International Long Range Reconnaissance Patrol School in Vanguard. And I was also part of their training wing. And we had Bodie join us after he'd uh, finished uh, Mr. Lewis uh, from uh, the professionals. He had joined the TA Paris. We put him through his training. A very good friend of mine, Jeff Butler, put him through his training. Part of that was that the 2-1 SAS had huge amounts of recruits, and we helped their training team uh, uh, pull them through their, their initial assessment. To wit, 2-1 offered up us uh, uh, some specialist training and low-level parachuting. And uh, at one point, we went off to test the Danish home defences, uh, jumping in at night in an eight-man team. It's all very, very exciting. Anyway, I had a very bad parachute accident and smashed in, and um, that was that was the end of my parachute career. The the next stage for me was to try my hand at uh, at selection. So I was I was to the fiddle. I, I'm ready to, to to have a go at SAS selection, but of course my shoulders completely wrecked, and and that was the end of that. So interesting enough, that was just oh well, you know I'll. I'll just go and do something else then. Sometimes your, your, your physical abilities will, will propel you to what you can do. But what I would say is that if, if, you're, if you're minded to, to give it a go, just go for it. Amazing, isn't it? The three songs that we, we look at are, first of all, one that reminds you of your upbringing, mm -hmm. that point particularly where you were transitioning from, from adolescence into adulthood. Second one, looking at the environment you're in, the place you're from. That might not be necessarily your home from childhood it might be another place and that third one that just one that makes you smile that one that makes you happy and i guess that third question to finish off with is if you could relive one day traffic island discs Marvin Gaye certainly, and pretty much any of Marvin Gaye's songs, but both is the, the one that will take me to a place where carefree, young, uh, and not a care in the world. Let's Get It On has to be the one for that. Yes, beautiful I, song. I think the song that certainly continues to make me smile, I'll go for the last one, which is probably Finlandia. Not the hymn, but the actual song, Finlandia. I think the, the words of that are, are quite powerful. Yeah, there's a country who is, is trying to break from tyranny. Beautiful piece of music. It's all the hardships that they go through, yeah, and yet there's beauty through the other side. To go back to the happy songs, Four Tops, I'm a massive fan of old music, so I think any of the Four Tops songs certainly make me very, very happy. You'd probably like it down here, Paul, in Louisiana. Yeah. The music's very good. Maine isn't renowned for its music. Maine isn't known internationally <laughs> for its place on the recording stage. But... That's brilliant. And that last one, then, that one day you could relive, Paul, if you could go back in time and relive one day. This is going to sound really, really corny, and I'm not saying this because my wife's in the other room, but our wedding day. I mean, I could pick a, a million one-time things in my life, but I've got to say, 
even now, I, I got a huge grin on my face. When I was in the army, my best friend, we were drunk one, and we said if we ever get married, we'd be each other's best men, which we were. And he came down the night before and we had a very quiet drink the night before. My bag do was like a week earlier, a week to get over it. And we went for a run that morning. We had a, a really good, good, good run. Came back. I was a, a weight and a size that I just put clothes on and it just, they just had a fantastic brand new suit from neck. And I just, Felt like a million dollars, and then when I looked at Anne and and then the dude, uh, and our wedding was over two days, and um, and to tell you how good I felt, we we flew off to the states for a honeymoon, and the tie that I had, I left it in the hotel. I am still grieving for that tie. So shout out to all our listeners if you find a tie. What, do you want to describe it, Paul? You know, after all this <laughs> stranger things have happened. Thirty-five years ago. But someone's wearing it and very happy now. And that's, that's what I hold on to. It hasn't been used to tie up a hostage or anything. Uh, well, <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully it has not been used for something else. Uh, well, yeah. I'm actually going to have to enroll in night school, start another career, because being a Hollywood screenwriter just isn't enough. I need to achieve a hell of a lot more. and I'm already 42. <laughs> I've always wanted to be a nuclear scientist and I think yeah, I should probably get started with that absolutely I mean I've just joined the uh, 65 the local fire brigade so there you go I'm following your example Paul look it's been an absolute privilege talking to you I feel like I could quite honestly talk to you all, all day and I would feel the richer for it well that marks the end of another interview special for Straight From The Hot Tap thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed the show we have loads of episodes in our back collection including some more brilliant interviews and the usual mayhem from matt josh lou and johnny so why not give us a listen on castbox spotify itunes or you can just ask alexa to play the podcast straight from the hot tap this week's taunton business shout out goes to seabass fish and chips in hamilton road taunton after thriving through the pandemic serving over a thousand portions per day they started to expand the restaurant with a new seating area able to seat 70 people Get yourself down there for some of the best fish and chips Taunton has to offer. This was straight from the hot tap.